Hello and welcome to Parley, the Hindu's weekly podcast where generally two contrarian views are expressed by experts in their respective fields on issues of current affairs, the economy, the judiciary, climate and energy and the likes. Let's jump right in. Uh, firstly, welcome Professor Vijay of the University of Hyderabad uh, where you teach uh, economics specializing in labor. and uh mr dk shivastava at ernst and young uh to this week's parley podcast the hindus parley is a weekly podcast where we discuss current affairs and um issues that are generally in the public discourse nationally and as we are all aware we're just uh, less than a week away now uh from the tabling of the interim budget on the 1st of february which is going to be the last uh budget of the bjp ruled nda government's second term um so this podcast is really to attempt to take stock of the past 5 years of the government mainly the economy and uh, just how well it has fared or if if it has not fared um and really to compare and to see if uh, there has been progress made from the last 5 years uh of the nda government if i can first just ask uh, professor vijay to introduce yourself to our guests please yeah uh i am vijay i i teach at the school of economics uh, university of hyderabad uh, i specialize in uh, labor economics as well as uh, environmental economics excellent sir uh, and mr srivastava well i am currently the chief policy advisor at ey india and prior to this i was director of madras school of economics i specialize in macroeconomics and uh, public finance great to have both of you on this podcast so let me first begin i think uh, a good way to sort of start to reflect on the past 5 years would be uh, the last interim budget uh, and uh, the subsequent full budget which was tabled in 2019 um of course the last interim budget was by the former finance minister piyush goel who's currently the textiles minister and finance minister nirmala sitaram's first budget was on the 5th of july of that year when she tabled the uh, budget we tend to sort of now see the economy or uh, indeed the larger uh, global framework through the lens of the pandemic 2019 um Six months ahead of the pandemic uh, was when the last uh, budget was tabled of this government. If I can ask both of you to maybe reflect on the sort of the economic outlook at that time and the policy prescriptions that the government had attempted then, and then we can sort of go on to subsequent questions. So, if I can ask uh, Mr. Srivastava to begin first. Thank you. The basic story for the last 5 years is basic is the overcoming of the covid shock and prior to that as you had indicated in the interim budget of 2019 the indian economy was not that well placed just uh, before 2019 two major reforms had happened one was the introduction of the goods and services tax which in the immediate vicinity of the introduction had certain implementation problems and uh, the revenue outcomes were uh, not revenue neutral at all also in 2019 there was these uh, cit corporate income tax reforms which also led to a, an erosion of the central uh, government uh, tax revenues so we started the uh, 2019 period with weak with a weak fiscal situation and also the growth rate because of that weak fiscal situation was uh, somewhat subdued and from that point we entered into the covid shock in 2021 and because we were entering into that shock with a with a somewhat uh, limited economic strength and also limited fiscal uh, options because of the lower buoyancy of the uh, central government tax revenues 
uh, we were not prepared from the viewpoint of any economic or fiscal strength as we entered in the, into the COVID shock. This is the reason why we experienced a very sharp contraction uh, as the result of the COVID and the contraction was just uh, somewhat lower than 7%. That is minus 6.6% or so of uh, uh, GDP growth. From then on, we started to recover. So from a very difficult trough of the economic cycle, we recovered and we recovered very fast. So in FY22, because of the base effect, we had clocked in more than 8.7% and then 23.7%. And in FY24, as per the latest estimates, the growth rate is now estimated to be about 7.3% for the full year, which means that although the COVID shock was faced by the Indian economy uh, from, a, from a weak background, but the recovery eventually has been very good in terms of both economic recovery and in terms of fiscal recovery. But the COVID shock itself had posed a number of challenges. First of all, apart from the contraction, the effect was experienced in a more serious way in the contact intensive sectors. And many of the large service sectors of the economy actually such as trade, hotels, storage, transport, etc. This was a contact intensive sector. And it was also an employment, a, a sector which accommodated a lot of small scale and medium scale industries. Therefore, the recovery was, as many argue, a K-shaped recovery. From then on, now after, I think, uh, nearly three years, uh, we can say, based on the sectoral uh, GBA growth data, that the recovery is now well balanced and even the straight hotel transport sector has also now entered into a, a meaningful positive territory. And therefore, we expect as, as we go by that uh, the MSME sector, the contact, contact intensive sector, etc., will also experience a full recovery. Right. Now, one more point that can be made is that uh, while growth was getting supported by fiscal stimulus and in the initial year by monetary stimulus, has been such that the strategy focused on infrastructure expansion, which means building public assets which would serve the economy and support growth in the medium to long term. And that is a very positive outcome, apart from the fact that we recover, recovered from the economic trough. Now to actually uh, quote from her speech, uh, following what uh, Mr. Srivastava just said about the low trough uh, that, uh, the gov- that the economy was at, at the end of this first uh, performance of uh, the first term of NDA. And uh, indeed, we must not forget that uh, those were the years uh, right following the demonetization uh, effort by the government, attempting, as the government claimed, to wipe out corruption when it uh, removed uh, the entire 2,000 rupee notes from circulation from the economy just a year or so ago. To quote the finance minister, she said uh, on the 5th of July in parliament, the first Uh, Here I'm quoting her. The first term of the Honorable Prime Minister Narendra Modi-led NDA government stood out as a performing government, a government whose signature was in the last mile delivery. Between 2014 and 19, we provided a rejuvenated state-centre dynamic, cooperative federalism, the GST Council and a strident commitment to fiscal uh, discipline. And on many programs and initiatives, we had worked on unprecedented scale and that the average amount spent on food security per year approximately doubled during 2014 to 19 compared with the previous five years. Uh, So if I can have Professor Vijay here come in, how do you look at the finance minister's statements and vis-a-vis where we are today? 
and I would also sort of point to the fact that uh, on the food security issue, despite the finance minister's claims in 2023, the on the Global Hunger Index, India was ranked 111 out of 125 countries, um, which indicates uh, the severity of a level of serious, uh, which is what the Global Hun Hunger Index marks it as, and that it has fallen from the previous year's mark of 107 at 2022. So if I can uh, bring in Professor Vijay to overall look at, of course, comparing it with... Uh, the pre-pandemic and the post-pandemic scenario? Uh, so firstly, I think, uh, you know, it's true that uh, with, with reference to the uh, GDP numbers or the growth rates and so on, one might say that perhaps apparently the uh, government's performance uh, uh, looks good. Uh, but the question is uh, whether or not uh, this is sustainable. And uh, there, I think one has to really look at uh, the whole, uh, uh, you know, analysis from the you know, human uh, angle or human centric uh, kind of analysis. Uh, and this is where perhaps, uh, you know, I would go a little backwards uh, in terms of uh, the 2016 uh, demonetization, uh, which uh, in my view uh, has actually contributed to the uh, long term kind of uh, contraction. Uh, GST as well as uh, COVID uh, perhaps were the additional shocks uh, which especially the uh, unorganized uh, sector received and perhaps the recovery of which is uh, still uh, you know to be seen with a lot of uh, skepticism given the high rates of uh, unemployment that we uh, continue to see so a lot of uh, those in the uh, self employed uh, a lot of those uh, who were operating uh, in in the unorganized sector where current uh, payments uh, uh, you know were far more uh, significant those sectors have actually, uh, you know, contracted and they might have not, uh, you know, recovered. Uh, so to look at the recovery in terms of uh, mere uh, value versus looking at it in terms of uh, employment and, uh, you know, livelihoods uh, would require a very different kind of a assessment. Uh, the other uh, aspect would be, uh, you know, also a critical analysis of the claims uh, about, uh, say, for instance, the introduction of the or the withdrawal of the 2000 rupee note, uh, which also claimed that uh, it is meant to really clean up the black money uh, and, and perhaps, uh, you know, uh, try and therefore uh, regulate, you know, the, the, the entire economy with, with reference to that. Uh, but we find, for instance, in the uh, more recent uh, uh, data from the Global Corruption Barometer, uh, Asia, uh, you know, the, that, that India records uh, the highest rate of bribery uh, within uh, Asia. And this is not the only organization which is uh, saying that. The other source being the Transparency International. Now, in 2016, when demonetization was done, uh, the perceptions were very favorable and we were ranked uh, 72nd, whereas by 2023, uh, we are now uh, ranked 85th amongst the, uh, you know, in, in terms of the perception of uh, corruption indices. So the idea that, uh, you know, this, this kind of a withdrawal of the 2000 rupee note uh, and, and the whole demonetization process uh, perhaps was the first shock and it was followed by uh, GST, but also the overemphasis on the supply side uh, kind of policies, which uh, where we saw a lot of these uh, startups uh, not really take off. So that was also another kind of a, a baggage uh, on the economy. So I think there are multiple reasons why, uh, you know, the numbers uh, with, with reference to unemployment as well as uh, inflation look uh, a little uh, unfavorable and scholars have started to again describe uh, the whole process in the lines of jobless growth. So therefore, I think uh, there's a need to really uh, stock take on the current situation in the backdrop of a variety of these, uh, you know, challenges as well as uh, limitations and failures uh, of the policies of the past. Uh, so the, the current situation cannot really be analyzed uh, beginning with 2019, but has to go back uh, to 2016. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Vijay, for that. Uh, and, you know, coming back to Mrs. Srivastava, you say that the GST Council, the introduction itself was uh, uh, something favorable while it has its fits and starts, but uh, 
you say that it is actually um, it has smoothened out. Uh, but just as recently as yesterday, the state of Kerala has announced that it is going to be uh, formally staging protests at Jantar Mantar in Delhi, uh, talking about the central government's negligence uh, of the state. And this very much uh, sort of uh, refers to the fact that central allocations have not been made, um, policy decisions have not been particularly favorable for the state. There appears to be uh, this larger concern that the GST has uh, very severely skewed uh, revenues and incomes in the favor and and the uh, and uh, fiscal uh, uh, you know powers in the favor of the central government and not the state government and um, it has really wrested power in a in a certain sense. Um, how would you look at how would you you know look at that overall scenario? Well, there is no doubt that the GST story is, is still incomplete. And there are many aspects of the GST uh, reform that uh, require further attention. First of all, it, was, it did not turn out to be revenue neutral. And although at the point of transition, the central, central government and the state governments considered together had a 50-50 share in terms of CGST and SGST. Uh, there have been a lot of issues with respect to why in actual practice the CGST and SGST are not balancing it out uh, if their rates are equal. There are also issues regarding the timing and the calendar of the release of the GST money. So in terms of administering the GST and even in terms of policy decision-making through the GST Council, I do not think that there is any doubt that the GST Council is highly centralized. In fact, in the constitutional amendment that uh, in, that implemented the GST, the, the way the voting has been structured in the GST Council is such uh, that it is very difficult for any individual state government to carry forward any of its own decision. In other words, the there has been an effective loss of revenue autonomy uh, for the state governments. And uh, even when many state governments get together, it will be very difficult for them to either agree on a certain change in the GST structure or get it passed uh, through the GST council. So there are a number of issues, but also in terms of the design of the GST, many important uh, goods are still outside GST, alcohol, uh, petroleum products uh, are uh, re revenue important examples of that. And unless we are able to tackle, unless we are able to implement a full-fledged production-oriented and productivity-oriented GST, its benefits cannot be reaped. So I would say that this is an incomplete story and uh, it is very difficult to reform it. And mostly because of the way GST Council voting happens, people settle for the lowest common denominator and that really keeps it uh, revenue non-neutral and in fact in the revenue losing side. So in spite of the figures that we uh, re see recently in terms of the gross GST figures, the CGA figures which are net of the in, uh, input tax rebates actually do not show that much of buoyancy. So I would agree that there are certain issues with the GST implementation and I don't think it can be reversed anymore, but it can be reformed and the reforms can be completed. At the same time, the issue was raised about uh, the last mile reach, which was the claim of the finance minister at the time of the 2019 budget. And I think in one dimension, the government of India has succeeded in terms of uh, introducing a, a large scale digita digitization of the uh, tra transactional matrix of the Indian economy. And the good feature is that many small scale industries and informal sector economic agents are able to participate in the digital transactions through the UPI platform and so on. So that has been a very good uh, 
addition to our uh, transactional infrastructure. On the side of the infrastructure, despite of various other issues, what is happening is that infrastructure based on even government borrowing, because government borrowing is another dimension in which they have not uh, been able to restore equilibrium. We are still uh, far in excess of the FRBM norms. And uh, as far as central government projections are concerned, and based on available information, even in this year, we may be uh, significantly above the FRBM norm of 3% of fiscal deficit for the central government. So, but what is good is that infrastructure is uh, adding assets on the one hand, even though it is adding liabilities on the other, other side. Now, one implication of this capital intensive investment done by the government is that it does economize on employment because uh, the saving investment ratios in the economy are such that in nominal terms, it has come down. The sa saving ratio is uh, just about 30% in nominal terms, although in real terms, it translates to about 34-35%. But that's only to the, to the extent that the capital uh, goods in deflator is showing a lower inflation than the, than the uh, normal goods, consumer goods uh, deflator. So only to that extent, saving real savings are still high. But it has the capital the incremental capital output ratio has increased. So in an economy which is capital is scarce, the use of more capital intensive techniques uh, is something that is bound to lead, uh, lead to an adverse impact on employment. But we have also to recognize that we are facing massive global challenges. The COVID shock was one time, but the supply side challenges emanating from the global economy are still continuing and therefore government has to provide that stimulus and government has to make sure that it is not going so much on the consumption stimulus as much as on the, on the side of the investment stimulus. So in that sense, I think we, we are having, we are able to show in broad growth numbers a growth performance which is uh, more than double of the global growth. So in times of this massive external sector challenge, maintaining a high level of growth is the first requirement for also ensuring employment. Right. Uh, so, I mean, uh, this is a good segue for me to uh, sort of shift focus on to capital expenditure that you just touched upon. Uh, and the government in the in its last budget, which is 2022-23, uh, made a... Uh, very significant announcement of an increase uh, by 33.4% uh, uh, in CAPEX expenditure to 10 lakh crore rupees. And uh, this was claimed as, uh, as you pointed out, the stimulus for income generation and for employment growth, and in, in uh, as a consequence, a reduction in poverty and inequality. Professor Vijay, do you think this is actually borne out in the real economy? Or is this, uh, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, is this actually yeah. bone Well, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, there are, I think, uh, you know, a couple of uh, these uh, dimensions that one has to really reflect on because uh, the way that uh, the GST uh, council has been working, uh, I think uh, it cannot really be uh, analyzed independently of the overall, uh, you know, institutional uh, relations uh, in terms of the federal relations. Uh, the, the center state relations have been, uh, you know, quite uh, problematic, uh, you know, under the uh, current regime. Uh, we have seen the kind of conflicts between, uh, you know, the chief ministers or the governments uh, in the state and the governors, as well as, uh, you know, the kind of uh, pressures that the state uh, is facing vis-a-vis -vis the requirements of finance. Now, uh, in terms of uh, the structural distribution of responsibilities, uh, we see that while the revenues, in a sense, are being controlled uh, extensively by the center uh, with very few, uh, you know, uh, with, with a little leverage available uh, at the state government level, uh, you know, following GST, 
uh, we see uh, a kind of a politicization of uh, the entire distribution of these resources. Uh, you know, the responsibilities of uh, executing a variety of welfare programs lies with the state government. And uh, it is therefore, uh, you know, likely to face a lot of pressure in case it fails. And I, uh, I think this uh, one has to really reflect on it. It quite clearly wouldn't emerge in terms of numbers. But one has to really look at other kinds of institutional, relational, uh, you know, variety of conflicts uh, and then analyze uh, the role that uh, GST is playing and GST Council is playing, uh, which has to be analyzed in the backdrop of the overall, uh, you know, kind of skepticism that has uh, emerged over the period of time, not merely uh, following the federal uh, relations uh, being a little more uh, disturbed, but also in terms of autonomy of a variety of institutions. Uh, so I think uh, in that background, uh, one has to really uh, analyze uh, this aspect. The other being uh, with reference to the uh, capex expenditure, uh, I think there the problem has been with reference to the kind of capital intensive technologies that have been employed uh, in course of carrying out these uh, variety of projects. Uh, so which then, uh, you know, amounts to really affecting adversely the elasticities uh, vis-a-vis the uh, employment generation. So I don't uh, really see uh, like, for instance, the uh, current, uh, you know, statistics uh, say uh, that's uh, from the CMIE report uh, that the unemployment rate it is at around 9.4%. So we can't really, uh, you know, that, that, that was the case in October uh, 2023, uh, although it has seen a marginal decline, uh, but it still remains quite high. So if that expenditure indeed uh, were to lead to a large quantum of employment generation, I don't think, you know, these numbers... Uh, would be uh, looking so uh, bad. Uh, so I think uh, with, with reference to therefore uh, the emphasis on building infrastructure in order to complement uh, you know, the investments uh, seems to have uh, taken uh, you know, the, the um, more emphatic focus rather than uh, in terms of really uh, looking at its impact on uh, employment generation. And by employment generation, I also would like to bring up the question of the quality of employment, the kind of uh, employment avenues that are getting generated uh, are predominantly uh, in the informal sector. Uh, and these uh, are highly unprotected, uh, you know, kind of uh, employment avenues uh, lacking bare minimum social security protections. And that is where one has to also talk about the adverse impact uh, on the capacity of labor to really, uh, you know, mobilize bargain uh, following the uh, changes to the labor codes. I'll, I'll give, you know, one illustration in Telangana, for instance, for the past almost nine to 14 years, there has not been a wage, a wage revision uh, in almost uh, 72 notified uh, sectors. Uh, so, uh, one, you know, you, you clearly see what is happening to labor, uh, you know, who are also employed, who are organized. Uh, so vis-a-vis -vis that, the conditions of the unorganized uh, sector uh, labor or the labor who, are, uh, who have no uh, voice or uh, unions uh, is actually much, much worse. So I think one has to uh, really, uh, you know, stock take on that uh, based on uh, these, uh, uh, you know, conditions. Right. So, um, so clearly you do both agree on the reform to GST, but there is some nuanced uh, difference on um, just how to approach it, uh, the sort of long view and the politicization. And, and uh, indeed, on CAPEX, there's very clearly an understanding that it is probably underperformed. I can then now shift to another crucial sector uh, and the largest employer in the country, which is agriculture. In the past five years, uh, beginning with the interim budget of uh, 2019, when uh, and in fact even earlier, when uh, what was seen as a sort of a political move was uh, done, which was this um, announcement of 6,000 rupees for uh, landowners, farmers holding less than two hectares uh, or rather five acres. Um, uh, which was sort of woven then into the interim budget. Uh, from then on to now, uh, of course, as recently as just a few days ago, the opposition has claimed that the agriculture ministry has surrendered about 1 lakh crore rupees over the past five years to the Consolidated Fund of India uh, as unutilized uh, uh, budgetary allocation for agriculture. Uh, and that, you know, the 
overall allocation has itself come down from 4.4% to just 2.5% for the entire sector. Um, if I can begin with you, Professor Vijay, uh, in the backdrop of the sort of uh, food insecurity that we witnessed uh, due to severe supply chain shocks uh, and extreme weather and the spikes in wholesale and uh, retail prices of food, how do you think the sector has fared over the past five years? Yeah, well, uh, I think with uh, reference to the, uh, you know, the, the specific program that you have referred to, uh, Telangana, in fact, uh, you know, under the BRS uh, was uh, the forerunner uh, for a similar uh, program. Uh, but uh, there have been serious, uh, you know, uh, concerns with reference to uh, who is the recipient? Because a large number of these uh, tenants have actually who who actually do agriculture, they have not really received uh, you know this this quantum of money so that they could uh, use it as some uh, you know capital. Uh, but instead, the landowners have been uh, receiving the uh, this money, and that uh, resentment I think has shown up uh, in the more recent uh, elections. Uh, so the fact that the government has uh, not even provided for this and has surrendered that quantum of money, that, you know, one has to really uh, look through uh, whether the program has actually been implemented or was it just a populist, uh, you know, kind of a program for for the elections purpose and 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 so on. Uh, now, with with reference to the second part of your question. Uh, yes, you yourself have uh, you know quite clearly mentioned what has happened with uh, reference to our performance on the global hunger index. Uh, you know, I would add that uh, the, the numbers also show that there is 80% uh, of our children uh, lacking uh, access to nutrition and about 36% uh, of the children suffering wasting, uh, which is a long-term kind of a, a deprivation, which might have even uh, intergenerational kind of effects. Uh, so given uh, the background uh, of, of that, those kinds of statistics, uh, I think one uh, problematic uh, move has been uh, in the follow-up to the withdrawal of those uh, farm laws, uh, which, which I think, uh, you know, the withdrawal was uh, in a sense uh, good. Uh, but uh, the way that, uh, say, for instance, the moves like uh, production of uh, ethanol by way of using uh, rice grains uh, or sugarcane, uh, I think uh, the you know this is an indirect way of uh, really resorting to the kind of objective that uh, government has had uh, with reference to corporatization of uh, agriculture. But there the uh, you know the, uh, the policy has been quite uh, inconsistent. It began by saying that we have huge quantum of uh, you know surplus unused uh, right, uh, you know uh, food grains. And then eventually, uh, you know, given uh, the kind of, obviously, the policy moved into a factor in the uncertainties of whether there were floods uh, in one part, there, there was lack of adequate rainfall in other parts, uh, following which then they uh, imposed ban, uh, both on exports as well as uh, sale uh, from the uh, FCI to the uh, ethanol manufacturing companies. Uh, so quite clearly, there is a, a challenge. Uh, and if you look at the food basket inflation uh, pulses, for instance, uh, are at 20.73%, uh, vegetables at 27.6%, fruits at 11.4%, sugar at 7.14%, cereals at 99 and spices at 197 uh, So with reference to assessing inflation uh, overall, the aggregate versus, uh, you know, what matters to the average uh, person, the poor people, uh, I think we are uh, in very different worlds uh, and and uh, uh, and the inflationary figures quite clearly in the backdrop of high levels of unemployment uh, as well as uh, extremely low wages uh, because there is a cost cutting mode, a strategy which uh, you know producers have been systematically uh, adopting in order to become more uh, competitive uh, on on the global uh, in the global market. There is a clear structural uh, you know kind of a crisis that is uh, uh, you know emerging. Right. Thank you so much for that, Professor Vijay. And uh, if I can come to you on the same question, uh, Mr. Srivastava, how do you uh, rate the uh, in second term of the India governments on the uh, on the agriculture front? Well, as far as uh, sectoral growth figures are com concerned, agriculture, except for the current year, has done very well in these problem years. 
In fact, its average growth rate was more than 3%. On a, I think over the five-year period, it will have an average growth of more than 3%, which would compare well very with the historical long-term trend growth of agriculture. In fact, if you look at the average growth of agriculture over a long period of time, it's this, this is a sector which is characterized by periodic cyclicality and the periodicity is about three years and average is rather low in the range of 2.5 to 3 percent. So in fact agriculture had been a saving grace in these three four years last three four years and our overall agricultural study is a strategy although it is largely the subject of uh, handled by subject handled by the state governments uh, is such that uh, they, just like any other developed economy, the center of gravity of the economy has to shift away from agriculture. In fact, it has been shifting away from agriculture. If we start from the 50s when its share was around 55% or more, it has now shrunk to about 16% in the GDP. And uh, even though its share in GDP is only 15-16%, it is sharing and uh, giving employment and that employment share is uh, close to in the range of 35 to 40 percent. So it is supporting and this average growth is only two and a half, three percent. So it generates lower income uh, on, in per capita terms. And therefore, as long as people remain in the agricultural sector, it will lead to relative uh, lower incomes and therefore leads to all these inequality problems and so on. And government has been attempting through ethanol and so on some kind of commercialization so that average income of the uh, households engaged in agriculture can be increased. I think both central and state governments are to blame because they have utilized the people in the rural areas for various political economy purposes but have not really worked towards the uh, towards a real robust economic uh, strength for people living in the rural areas. Right, sir. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, just to play devil's advocate, you're saying that agriculture has actually performed better uh, over the past uh, few years, but it also appears to be the same time when um, farmers have really held prolonged protests against uh, several of the government's initiatives, particularly the farm laws, which uh, eventually had to be revealed, uh, repealed. Um, and um, as Professor Vijay was just pointing out there, in terms of uh, production outcomes as well, uh, there has been such a major uh, you know, um, divergence in terms of outcomes for instance, uh, the, uh, coffee production uh, is has been hugely hit because of uh, major climate change issues. Uh, you know, tea, which is a major exporter, has uh, suffered uh, huge cuts in um, uh, in terms of what the the payment is per kg of exported tea or even procurement. Uh, the minimum support prices, which was guaranteed under the Swaminathan Commission, has not really been met over the past 10 years. And uh, farmers' incomes have remained stagnant. And as you pointed out yourself, uh, about uh, well over a third of employment still continues to be in that sector. So how, uh, you know, how do you square this with uh, what you just said about uh, agriculture being a slightly brighter spot? Well, agricultural sector, I hope you agree, does require a lot of reforms. And when reforms were introduced, it met uh, various political economy dimensions are there, met with a lot of resistance. Now, the method or the mode through which those reforms were kind of imposed on the, on the farmers may have their weaknesses, may have had their weaknesses. But I think the agricultural sector does require a lot of reforms and there are there is no clear concerted thinking about how to design those reforms and how to implement those. And unless reforms are introduced, if we go on working with the older paradigms and expect new and better outcomes, I think it's a self-defeating exercise. 
in any case the share of agriculture is predicted to fall to less than 5% of gdp in about two and a half to three decades the future lies moving away from agriculture to industry and services if you expect that agriculture would yield these outcomes i think that uh, may not happen but even while we remain in agriculture it does require a lot of reforms you have to think as to what are the appropriate reforms and what is the best way of introducing those okay so shifting focus now to uh, healthcare and education uh one of the things that the government has sort of claimed uh particularly in the last budget was that it has increased its budgetary allocations on health from 1.4% of the gdp to 2.1% from 90 of 2019 to 2023 while it's still under 3% that several uh, experts in the field have argued at least should be uh, and on education it has claimed a very marginal increase from 2.8 to 2.9% now in the backdrop of the pandemic which particularly had a very severe impact on both these sectors uh, health needless to say uh, we we not only saw uh, you know swathes of uh, death occurring across the country there was this uh, uh, sort of mass migration of labor from south to the north uh, particularly uh, you know working class uh, labor and uh on he- on education as well there was uh, suddenly this realization that uh, uh the capacity to attempt virtual education just does not exist as an infrastructure and uh, uh you know some necessary investments need to be made so do you think in these past few years uh to some extent this uh, I- these issues have been addressed uh, if i can start with you professor vijay yeah well i i think i would uh, also like to uh, you know uh, go back to the kind of question you have asked earlier uh, you know professor shrivastava's analysis of course you know with a focus on uh, growth uh, the kind of uh, issues pertaining to reforms of agriculture might make sense uh, but structurally speaking if uh, the agrarian economy's uh, capacity to employ people contracts on account of a mounting crisis then where do we really accommodate these people see as of now the per capita incomes are so low uh, following you know the the very fact uh, that he himself has mentioned the dependence on agriculture being high while its relative proportional share has come down quite significantly uh, so owing to which there are you know multiple kinds of uh, livelihoods that people search for so in that backdrop one has to then uh, also look at the other social investments and i would uh, really bring uh, your attention to the uh, discussions on uh, the consequences to the 14 finance commission uh, which on the face of it has increased uh, the allocations uh, you know vis-a-vis the states uh, it has increased uh, it from 32 to 42% but uh, you know scholars have been uh, pointing out that a variety of social sector spending uh, which ought to have been given as a share of the state a lot of those uh, social sector investments have uh, shrunk uh, and it has had uh, you know quite a significant uh, adverse impact because one has to really look at it together for instance in the realm of education uh, with this uh, niti aayog's report uh, on on the outcomes based education uh, so they have replaced the right to education with the outcomes based education as part of which Uh, we find that between uh, say 2000 uh, uh, you know 17 and uh, 18 uh, oh, sorry 2018 and 19 you have had a close to 51000 uh, schools closed down uh, and uh, if you were to analyze uh, the the number extended to the current uh, you know 2023 it comes to somewhere around 1 lakh 900 and uh, sorry 1 lakh 9134 schools uh, which have been closed down uh and you look at uh, what has happened as a consequence uh you know there has been large number of dropout uh you know of, of children from schools uh and of these you have 25% of tribal children and 20% of uh, dalit children who have actually uh, quit the schools so in terms of how uh, you know we, while uh, you see that the overall dropout rate has in fact uh, decreased so by implication uh, in in social development terms uh, 
uh, that uh, the the deprivation and the gap between the social groups uh, vis-a-vis the access to education seems to have been intensified uh, owing to the kind of uh, problems uh, in the uh, 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 social investments. Uh, so I think I think that will be my uh, kind of observation. Right. Uh, Professor Srivastava, if I can come to you on this. Right. I think the question of uh, finding jobs of, for people who are leaving agriculture and the budgetary allocation to health and education sectors can be linked. In fact, I think that when uh, there would be massive migration out of agriculture, of course, it is not a one-time migration. It's a slow migration. These people cannot be fully absorbed in manufacturing because manufacturing is capital intensive and it requires different kind of training and skilling. So it can be done only to a limited extent. But it is in the services sector where the large demographic dividend, so-called demographic dividend, which is unfolding and the migration out of agriculture of people seeking jobs uh, it will have to be accommodated in the services sector, of which health and education constitute a very critical component. Now, unless these people, uh, young people who are joining the working age group and people migra- migrating out of agriculture are trained, skilled, kept in good health, uh, there is no way we can productively uh, utilize them and there is no way we can realize really the benefits of the unfolding demographic dividend. It is true, as you had observed earlier, that both health and agriculture are underprovided. And the international norms with respect to budgetary allocation for agriculture and health are not at all met in India and the the deficiency has continued for years altogether. And the issue really is actually the fiscal situation of both central and state governments. Dr. Vijay had pointed out about the vertical sharing of resources, which was handled by the 14th Finance Commission. And we are looking in very great detail as to what is the share of states and what is the share of center in the combined revenue receipts after transfers. And we are finding that there has been a very significant move, not generally recognized by analysts, very significant move in favor of the states. Uh, When we consider not just tax devolution, but also grants and not just grants that are given by finance commissions, but also by the central government. Now, central government also spends on variety of uh, centrally sponsored schemes and central sector schemes and uh, including dimensions of health and education. And the state governments also spent on many of these uh, social sector schemes. But overall, there is an under provision because of the limitation of our tax GDP ratio. Our tax GDP ratio has been stagnant for nearly three and a half decades in the range of uh, something like uh, 16 to 18% averaging 17%. And as long as we remain so constrained in terms of the tax revenues raised out of GDP, I don't think there would be enough space to provide provide adequately for health and expenditure. In fact, if you just look at the central government finances, committed expenditure in terms of interest payments, pensions, and fiscal transfers alone account for more than 90% of centers' revenue receipts. And therefore, there is hardly any discretionary space left. I think these are questions that require a detailed examination and attention. And there are a lot of political economy influences and neither tier of government can be praised or not held responsible. Right, right. Thank you both so much for this. I think finally, I I want to touch upon uh, one other uh, sector, which is the power sector, uh, and also in the backdrop of the uh, Indian government's, uh, you know, India's commitment at uh, Glasgow at COP26, uh, where India decided uh, to 
become net zero, uh, which is which which means removing as much carbon as uh, human activity emits into the uh, environment uh, uh, by 2070. Uh, and, uh, you know, subsequent policy uh, pronouncements, which reflected in the budget, uh, particularly in 2022-23 uh, and then 23-24, uh, just to quote one of them, it, uh, it, it is the production-linked incentive, which uh, was announced in 2022-23, about 19,500 crores, which uh, was allocated to produce solar modules and, uh, and uh, to attempt to integrate the entire manufacturing of solar PVs, which is now overwhelmingly dominated by China. And then the next year, there was a subsequent, uh, you know, substantial allocation for the production of green hydrogen, um, as well as a commitment of 35,000 crore rupees towards energy transition, that is to sustainable energy production, um, particularly through the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas. So I wanted to ask if, uh, uh, you know, these commitments have... Uh, born fruit or if this is if it is too early to tell um and indeed if these if these sort of production linked incentives are uh, a workable solution towards creating the manufacturing that is required for uh, energy transition maybe if i can start with uh, you uh, mrs srivastava well as far as india's commitment uh, of 2070 uh, zero emission target is concerned india was able to successfully delay the pressure where the most of the developed countries were pushing for 25-2050 as the threshold year. Uh, as far as investments and initiatives of Government of India is concerned, I think there is a lot of uh, emphasis on shifting away from dependence on imported petroleum products and uh, green, a lot of emphasis on green energy for which the PLI, license, PLI support is now being given. A number of licenses are getting issued. Uh, this is a work in making, actually. This is, a, this is something just, which has just taken off. It is very difficult to assess as to what would be the ultimate outcome in terms of reaching that kind of situation. But I would say two things. First, that there is a very significant carbon imbalance across states, which requires the attention of the 16th Finance Commission or other uh, agencies that are concerned with the, the, the impact of pollution, including carbon emissions, on the citizens. May, in my view, the there has been a considerable uh, injustice given to the so-called so coal-producing states like Chhattisgarh, uh, Urissa, Madhya Pradesh, and so on, because they, their citizens, because of coal mining, suffer extensive amount of pollution hazards, health hazards, and so on. But there, ha there has hardly been any recognition by the finance commissions or other allocative uh, mechanisms to account for the kind of uh, negative externalities that the citizens uh, have been forced to bear in these uh, mineral producing states. So that is one aspect that we need to cover as we go along. Uh, it has not been it has not been receiving adequate attention so far. Now the as far as uh, uh, saving on imported petroleum is concerned, I think a lot of positive news has come around in terms of a starting uh, oil drilling and uh, finding uh, petroleum uh, reserves in uh, Andaman and Nicobar and uh, Godavari Basin and so on. Hopefully all of this would work out because this is something that is just unfolding now. And it is very difficult to predict, but I one thing is very sure that uh, we may be able to save something on the extent of imports of uh, crude. But I think the Indian economy is going to remain largely dependent on uh, thermal energy, which would be continuing to pollute. Right. Uh, Professor Vijay, if I can uh, get your opinion on this. 
Yeah, uh, so I think the last statement uh, by uh, Professor Shivastava would have, you know, contradicted the entire set of uh, objectives uh, with vis-a-vis the uh, green energy kind of option and uh, our promises to reduce uh, pollution. Uh, the other uh, with reference to also, you know, the petrol, uh, the blended petrol, uh, there is a very controversial kind of, a, uh, you know, kind of an area, uh, technically speaking, because scholars have been pointing out uh, that uh, even in course of producing a variety of grains or even, uh, you know, uh, production of sugarcane involves a lot of, uh, you know, use of fertilizers, pesticides, which are also, uh, in a sense, uh, indirectly, uh, you know, using fossil fuels uh, or fossil fuel derived, uh, you know, kind of products. Uh, and uh, also the idea that uh, large quantum of, uh, you know, depletion of the land, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, as, a, as a consequence to uh, these kinds of productions, uh, the ability in net energy terms, uh, you know, per uh, joule of uh, energy or kilojoule of energy derived, what is the quantum of saving that uh, the economy is making on account of, uh, you know, these kinds of moves uh, is a bit uh, suspect. Uh, so, uh, obviously, uh, you know, with, with reference to the developed countries versus the developing economies, uh, quite clearly, the developed countries are responsible for, uh, you know, large uh, part of the uh, climate uh, crisis. So, uh, there perhaps uh, they do have an onus. Uh, but in terms of actually articulating uh, an interest or an intent uh, and not really following it up with reference to an effective, uh, you know, policy direction, uh, one really finds it difficult to uh, believe that uh, because, you know, even with reference to, say, for instance, the environmental impact assessment uh, parameters, uh, something like uh, public participation or, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the perceptions of people, which was part of the indices, uh, that has been now removed, uh, suggesting that there is a, a subjectivity and that's not an objective, uh, you know, statistic and so on. And we also find on the ground that uh, the environmental regulatory agencies uh, are very, very, uh, you know, casual in the way that uh, they are enforcing the rules. Uh, so I wonder if, uh, you know, the, the kind of objective set and the kind of, uh, you know, policy uh, direction or the concrete practice uh, matches up with the kind of uh, aspired outcomes, even by, uh, say, 2070. Right. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, I actually wanted to have one more question to for you both to answer because without this, it's actually sort of incomplete. Um, on inequality, uh, there's been much talk about it uh, as recently as just a few days ago. The former finance minister under the UPA government, uh, P. Chidambaram, has written about uh, uh, the sort of the stark contrast between... Um, uh, the, uh, you know, the median income, the affluent income and the net per capita uh, income, uh, pointing out that uh, the, the bottom tier earns as low as 6,000 rupees per month, uh, while the top tier uh, is, is you know, uh, well over 8, 8,40,000 per year. So if I can um, ask you, Professor Srivastava, uh, how has the government done uh, in the past five years to address inequality in the country? And have we gotten better at it? Well, I think government's strategy has not been focused on inequality reduction so much as poverty reduction. So it seems that the government has focused on sustaining growth, uh, except for the COVID-affected years and focus on poverty reduction. So as long as poverty reduction was something, even prior to uh, 2019, uh, there are various estimates. And of course, both poverty figures and uh, inequality figures have been subject to a variety of doubts and questions. Subject to that uh, inquiry about the robustness of data, if the strategy remains focused on sustaining growth at 7% plus and poverty reduction, then we have to really look at the structural change in the, in the economy where 
the projections are that the incomes would have to be really generated in the service sector because that is less capital intensive and as long as our saving investment rates remain confined to the range of 34-35%, an incremental capital ratio is not allowed to increase beyond 5 that is, we don't adopt more capital-intensive technologies, then we will have to really find income and employment for the unfolding uh, working-age population people in the services sector, that's where health and education become important. That's where allocations to those sectors become important. That's where adjustment uh, uh, would, would have to be called for. And the challenge of the emergence of new technologies such as artificial and generative, generative AI, which is also labor-saving, will have to be faced. So that kind of employment and income strategy, once... Uh, it is deliberated upon and put in place, only then we can be sure that inequality in incomes would be reduced. Until then, I think we will have to live with growth with poverty reduction. Right. Well, thank you so much for that uh, perspective. Uh, if I can um, uh, throw the same question at uh, Professor Vijay. Yeah, uh, well, I think, uh, you know, as I think uh, uh, Professor Srivatsava has already recognized the limitation of the claim, uh, you know, which has been made uh, with, with reference to poverty reduction. Uh, so the, the claim quite clearly is a problematic because uh, the data, uh, the trends uh, in the poverty reduction of uh, the pre-COVID time, uh, the trend line has been used to also uh, extrapolate it to the post-COVID times. And uh, several international, uh, you know, institutions have pointed out that a large number of people might have actually slided back into uh, poverty following the COVID shock. Uh, I have a couple of other, you know, figures here. For instance, uh, uh, both with reference to the uh, human development indices, uh, where our rank has, uh, you know, slided down from uh, 130 of uh, 189 countries in 2018 to uh, 132, uh, 132nd rank uh, by 2023. Uh, and that's that's the human development uh, indices, but also the World Bank's human capital index, where uh, we have uh, slided down by uh, about one rank uh, from 115 to 116. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, how do you manage to really correct for uh, both poverty as well as uh, inequality when you are in a sense, driving the entire uh, taxation structure uh, through a certain kind of a regressive uh, taxation mode, because there have been several concessions uh, given to, uh, you know, the, the vis-a-vis the corporate taxes, uh, the direct, uh, you know, income tax, uh, and mostly the revenues are being recovered from the uh, indirect uh, taxes, uh, and which, which essentially is seen as... Uh, uh, you know, not uh, showing a concern for inequality, uh, you know, as a problem. And I think this assumption that growth itself uh, necessarily trickles down and would address the problem of poverty without uh, there being uh, an effective agency, uh, you know, directing uh, it that way uh, would be, I think, far-fetched because historically, uh, quite clearly, there has been no such, uh, you know, uh, empirical evidence uh, that markets, uh, you know, themselves cause uh, these kinds of trickle down, especially in a context where uh, you're seeing severe uh, unemployment. Uh, and I would also go back, uh, you know, and comment on uh, Professor Srivastava's uh, observation that uh, the the shift from the agrarian economy into the manufacturing uh, is uh, to be seen as being constrained by uh, high technology. Well, I think uh, a large part of the uh, manufacturing sector is also operating in the MSME, uh, where you do not really uh, talk in the language of high, uh, you know, capital intensive kind of uh, investments. Uh, and it is this sector which has really taken a beating. And if the sector has to really recover or revive, uh, the expansion of this sector uh, scholarship is, uh, you know, suggesting that it comes from expansion of volumes. Uh, because it's the size of the market that uh, basically impacts on the uh, uh, you know higher levels of productivity uh, through uh, higher levels of division of labor so it's an expansion of scale that we are really talking about uh, which might uh, generate uh, and fix the problem of uh, unemployment 
by looking at the manufacturing sector because what higher levels of domestic consumption ought to be the focus therefore uh, in terms of reviving uh, you know the the economy and fixing the problems of uh, unemployment uh, and uh, inequality right well i mean on the economy i think there's so much more to talk about uh, really uh, you know we can we haven't really addressed uh, poverty alleviation in substantially the, and indeed uh, uh, sectorally we can uh, we haven't addressed for instance the um, mass layoffs that are be taking place now in the tech sector uh, very much addressing to your point about uh, the high automation taking place across uh, sectors uh, you know, professor vijay which you know which is a challenge in terms of uh, you know it sort of contradicts the the job creation claims that the government has been making and indeed um, uh, whether it is possible to attempt higher automation and yet create quality jobs uh, so yeah that, that i think is an additional complication which has come uh, you know in the high end value but that share of employment is uh, very minuscule in a sense you know in comparison to the total employment uh, so although you know in large numbers the absolute numbers look quite uh, you know shocking but in terms of how many people can really get into those kinds of employment it's an additional crisis right. to the kind of crisis that already exists uh, with with reference to unemployment right right so uh, you know as a, it is rather a vast pool that we can we can go on talking about uh, but uh, i mean Uh, it's safe to say that the, it has been a rather mixed bag for the past 5 years uh, uh, certain sectors have uh, have just had better allocation uh, for the sheer reason that uh, uh, there was this major shock of the pandemic and um, certain other sectors have uh, remained neglected uh, and and require substantial addressing uh, like agriculture and so forth uh, but uh, in any case Uh, i think we should end here for uh, this podcast um, and uh, thank you i would first like to thank both of you for uh, being patient and uh, being part of this conversation um, and talk to you in the near future very soon thank you thank you thank you very much thanks thank you very much